All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free. Thank you for the completed canon of Scripture. Thank you for saving us and sanctifying us daily. And thank you for reminding us of your grace and love that is behind it. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on that cross 2,000 years ago to cancel out that debt and make a night like this one even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel, Salvation, Sanctification, Part 94. Just so you know, we seem to be getting close to getting back to the mainstream framework, which has been this for some time, for months now. It's just been sort of hidden in the background. Um, But it is our big picture curriculum, so to speak. So remember, um, he's got us on these two perspectives, salvation perspectives as we've studied it out. God's perspective is one. Uh, He saves us. Uh, Salvation from sin However, man, uh, we, through Scripture, can choose to look at it in three different tenses because of uh, the construct of time. So from man's perspective, there's a positional aspect, which is from the penalty of sin, experiential from the power of sin, and ultimate from the very presence of sin. We studied those in great detail with uh, supporting Scripture and what have you, but the idea, again, is that as you're sanctified, as you're sanctified, these pers- this perspective becomes more like God's. And that's what he's been showing us. And the same goes with the perspective that we've been on now for a while that we are still on relative to experiential sanctification. Again, sanctification really means to be set apart for God. That's God's perspective. It's something he's going to do. He promises to do it. Um, he doesn't make any mistakes in choosing us and getting that work done. Uh, We know that Scripture says he'll get it done, but still, from man's perspective, because of the construct of time again, we might look at it in phases. Positional sanctification, uh, it's a judicial aspect, experiential sanctification, it's a daily aspect, and then ultimate sanctification is an eternally uh, wrought aspect or um, perspective. And again, The whole idea is that he's trying to give us more and more of his perspective, and that's why he keeps bringing this slide back. Just to elevate your system of thinking, just to get you back to the big picture, remember, you're not going to remember all the details. Can anybody here even remember the details of Scott's lesson, all of them from Tuesday? No. What scripture he went to? No. You're not going to remember all the details, but you will get the big picture, and you will be edified along the way. And that's why he's been doing this wonderful thing for all of us. So don't, please don't lose the sight of the big picture here. It's very important to your education. Uh, with that said, the Spirit gave us some wonderful perspectives worth reiterating here from Tuesday and beyond up here on the board. First, your experiential sanctification. This came up at the beginning of class. God looks forward to sanctifying you. You. He's going to put you in unique situations where only you can bring glory to Him. That's an important point for all of us to remember because it keeps us from looking to our right and to our left and saying, why am I not living the spiritual life the way 
John is or Sally is or whoever is, my neighbors, God looks forward to sanctifying you. And He's going to put you in unique situations where only you can bring glory to Him. And that's been a theme for a long time from this pulpit, uh, whether you realize it or not. This is a wonderful perspective since the world tries to tell us that we should be comparing ourselves with one another all the time. It's a horrible plague. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you look like this person on this cover of this magazine? Why don't you act like this one? Why aren't you as strong as that one? Why aren't you as intelligent as this one? Everything's a you should be, and you never, ever make it. And that's the whole game. When God's saying, listen, I created you the, just the way I wanted to create you. And that's a lovely thing. You've been wonderfully made, so says Scripture. We know from Jesus' correcting his own disciples even that the, you know, the who's the greatest argument, that's not his will for us. He doesn't want us asking that question, who's the greatest? He purposely created every one of us differently, and He gave us different lives to live, etc., etc. These are things we've been studying out. If he, I'll think about it this way. If He wanted a bunch of drones, He would have created them. If He wanted everyone to be like everyone else, He would have made everyone like everyone else. And that's not what He wanted at all. He wants us to even love Him because He first loves us. So think about one of the reasons, one of the fundamental reasons why your personal, unique walk means something personally to God. Because you love Him. And the only way, frankly, you know how. And it's very unique. Your love for Him is different than mine. Why? Because you have a different kind of experience with Him. You have a different respect for him you have a different level of engagement with him and in that sense your love is different even to him and so we do love though because he first loved us and just reflect for a moment think about the simple fact that god created man in his own image and has given us the most precious thing of all love we just lost the light should i do something Good. All right. So think about the simple fact that God created man in his own image and has given us the most precious thing of all, love. And ask yourselves how different your love is for each individual in your lives and vice versa. Isn't it a wonderful kaleidoscope? Would you want it any other way? Would you want a bunch of drones? Would you want to just love everybody the same way? And would you want to be loved the same way by everyone? I doubt that very much. I think that we all enjoy the variety of love that we are able to give and receive in time. I think that's frankly what makes life exciting. I mean, it sort of rounds out the sphere of love, doesn't it? I mean, no one on this planet, except God, has the ability to love you. All right. Has the, okay, God's like, yeah. Has the, has the ability to love you completely, except Him. Which means that it might take 
a bunch of people to love you in certain ways so that your sphere, your, ex- your experience with it, even in time, through vessels, is completed to whatever degree he wants it to be. And guess what? God loves this concept too. Now, on the flip side, for the sake of being thorough in our analysis, what happens when we love and our love is spurned? What happens when we love, the only way we know how, and that love is spurned? You know, like God has to deal with every single day. This is the wonderfully placed question the Spirit left us with uh, in closing on Tuesday up here on the board. And this is a sanctification perspective. When love is spurned, it gives even more. 2 Corinthians 12, 15. Is there anything more persistent than God's love? Quote, But now faith, hope, love abide these three. The greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Quote, If I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, part B. What is Paul saying here? Now, I need you to concentrate. Tonight is going to be packed. Again, when love is spurned, it gives even more. Is there anything more persistent than God's love? But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. What is Paul saying here? It's simple. Let's call it binding faith. Let's call it the difference between real faith or godly faith and some other faith. Let's just call it what it is up here on the board. Everyone has faith in something, but unless love binds that faith to serving others, it is worthless. Everyone has faith in something. There are, you know, Muslims right now uh, planning on killing Christians right now. They have faith in something. It's ungodly, but they have faith in it. God's love is nowhere in the midst of that at all. Everyone has faith in something. That's an extreme example, so measure it out for yourself. Everyone has faith in something, but unless love binds that faith to serving others, it is worthless. So let's work through this for a moment. That's what Paul is saying. And he says it throughout the whole New Testament. So let's work through this for a moment. Faith is able to meet fear head on, to transcend it by establishing godly perspective in the soul. However, without love, regardless of how much faith you stake a claim to, you'll never, let's just say move. You'll never move towards the object of your faith. Let me say it again. Faith is able to meet, things, uh, meet fear head on to transcend it by establishing godly perspective in the soul. However, without love, regardless of how much faith you stake a claim to, you'll never move towards the object of your faith. So reflect. Why do some not move towards the Word of God? Because they have little or no love for it. (laughs) 
If you love something, what do you want to do? You want to spend time with it. You want to relate to it. You want to engage with it. Why do some say they have faith, let's say, but not move towards the Word of God? Little or no love for it. Why do some not move towards serving others? Little or no love for others. Why do some not move towards doing rather than merely hearing? Little or no love for doing. Well, as we've been noting in the divinely inspired Holy Scriptures, Paul was a mover because he was a lover. Paul was a mover, a doer, because he loved. That's what the Spirit's saying. That's what he was trying to teach people. If you don't have love, you got nothing. You can have all the quote, faith in the world. But if you don't have love, you're just a clanging symbol. And God gave us each an expression of his own personal love and said, I want you to love me back. Heck, I'm going to make, it, I'm going to make you capable of loving me back. And the flesh despises that, of course. Everyone has faith in something, but unless love binds that faith to serving others, it is worthless. And as we've learned, Paul was bound to serve those who never seemed to completely appreciate him, nor love him back the way he loved them. Go to 2 Corinthians 12, 15. Again, Paul was bound. This came up on Sunday this idea of being bound by love to others. Paul was bound to serve those who never seemed to completely appreciate him, nor love him back the way he loved them. And that's okay, because that's literally Christ's existence. 2 Corinthians 12.15 I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Yeah. It's a rhetorical question. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened to Paul. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Yes. And just to complete Paul's words here so that you don't think that he saw something in others that didn't come true, would you like to know the end of Paul's ministry? Would you like to know how it ended for Paul? This same man who loved so much that people basically despised him? Who was such a mover and a doer that people had it their fill of him? Go to 2 Timothy 4.14. I'll show you the end of Paul's ministry. Paul wasn't stupid, and he saw the writing on the wall, just like Jesus did. Read the end of Jesus, uh, John chapter 2. He says, I'm not putting my faith in I know the heart of man. You guys are fickle. Paul lived it. Some of you can relate. I know I can. It's incredible. The more you love, the less you're loved. It's incredible. 
2 Timothy 4.14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He didn't, you notice how he didn't say, I'm going to go chase down after him. I'm going to go hunt him down. He said, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he has vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. His heart never wavered. Everyone deserted Paul. And they all desert, they all desert him. What did he say? May it not be counted against them. I don't know about you, but this is what I see up here on the board. This is a type of Jesus' words on the cross as he bore the ultimate suffering for others, and they scorned him for it. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Luke 23 34. Isn't that what Paul is expressing? Christ's same love? Whether we like to think about him this way, in the end, Paul was left pretty much all alone. Why? Because he had the courage to square off with his fellow men. And at the end of the day, his fellow man despised him for it, for holding up a mirror to their faces that they couldn't stand to look at, at least not forever. And I can certainly relate, and I'm sure some of you can as well. But like Paul, we all ought to stand firm in our faith that the Lord has our backs, even when everyone else abandons us. 2 Timothy 4.17 But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. So he basically said, everyone left me. <laughs> but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. So up here on the board, this is what you're seeing, my friends. You're seeing a very mature individual express himself. The Lord stood with me. Paul's ultimate security was in Christ. He was matured to the point of peace in simply knowing that he had fulfilled his mission and that the Lord never forsook him. As it says in Hebrews 11, uh, 13, 5. Again, Paul's ultimate security was in Christ. Hebrews 13, 5, For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So even though Paul might have felt abandoned, he wasn't. And even though he probably felt figuratively abandoned much of his ministry, he always knew that his relationship with the Lord is what counted the most. And so he kept on pushing and pressing on in the face of Adversity that really none of us will ever be able to fully understand. So may we all share in Paul's heart here, for we all suffer similar fates to the degree that we persevere in the face of adversity. Again, verse 17, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. 
To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, you see, one of the reasons we have Paul's testimony in the New Testament is so that we can relate to him personally. We are not Paul. Paul's not us. We started class this way. But we certainly can relate to the things that he went through, at least to some degree, probably not the degree that he had to go through them, for obvious reasons, but there are other things that he didn't have to go through. I mean, he never was married, right, guys? Just saying, sorry, ladies. <laughs> right? I mean, there's certain things he didn't have to go through. I'm just saying. I'm just trying to, you know. So one of the reasons we have Paul's testimony in the New Testament is that we can relate to him personally. I believe one of the greatest examples he gave us is in revealing to us the extent that he was willing to go to deliver his flock. Now, each of you have a ministry. His was as a shepherd. Now, there's a uniqueness to that. I may be the only person in the room that can totally get it. But he's a good example because that was his mission. And he put everything into that mission to deliver his flock. And that's what we see in the New Testament. We see a man literally lay it all out on the line. Say, am I to love you more and be loved less? Yep. And then he's all alone. How can that possibly be? As we noted in Galatians 4.19, quote, My children, with whom I am again in labor, it's literally the Greek word for childbirth. I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Paul pretty much did whatever it took to complete his mission. I think a person who argues that the Corinthians were among the greatest challenges for Paul would be certainly onto something. Some of you might remember when I taught you about the city of Corinth, and I even showed you a map like this. Remember, there's a thing called the Isthmus. That's this little skinny thing. And as you can see, anytime you're a seaport with you know, adjacent bodies of water like this and a lot of sort of thoroughfare. I mean, you can imagine how many people walked between these two masses of land and then how many ships and vessels and trade merchant uh, vessels and such may have been present at Corinth. And what happens when you've got that much business? Right? Money! They were opulent. They were distracted. Because of the nature of Corinth, its great wealth during Paul's time, it was plagued with an influx of worldliness. Sound familiar with the U.S. today? So, what do you think, then, a contemporary shepherd, say like myself, has to deal with? If the U.S. is a lot like Corinth, bunch of spoiled, worldly brats. What do you think a shepherd has to deal with, like myself, especially in New England, where money and ungodly ideologies pervade society? Hmm. In any case, as we read a chapter from 1 Corinthians, consider Paul's heart in the simple fact that he did whatever it took to complete his mission. And if it meant he'd be loved less, then so be it. 
The Lord had his back and he had faith in that truth. Go to 1 Corinthians 9, 19. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. I think it's possible to say that... Yeah, I think it's probably fair to say I've actually never been loved less than right now. People appreciate me for what I do, and they, you know, in passing, oh, thank you so much. But it's an awful reality, but it is what it is. The more you try to deliver people, the less they love you. They despise you in the end. 1 Corinthians 9.19 For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. You see what's going on. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may, by all means, save some. Up here on the board, this might help. All things to all men. Paul endured whatever he needed to, so that the gospel might be preached. God used a multifaceted individual to reveal his to his children what grace orientation and humility looked like. He wasn't perfect. He admitted that, Philippians 3.12, but he was effective. Let's press on. 23 again. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. In other words, he's saying, I'm all in, you go all in. I'm all in here, Corinthians. You go all in. Oh, no, no, no. We'd rather despise you and keep our worldliness. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then they, or they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, some might say, after reading something like that, that that's the whole picture of grace and humility. Look at Paul. Look at how much he's just willing to lay it all out in the line. Look at how flexible he is. Look at all the things he's willing to do for the sake of others. And there is a lot of the whole picture of grace and humility there. But if you say that's the whole picture, you'd be wrong. You'd be very wrong. For this same person, in keeping with the point on the board, he's the one who had to boast in himself from time to time. He had to discipline his sheep when necessary, sometimes even publicly. You know, a true soldier is no less a soldier during peacetime than wartime, and vice versa. A soldier has a mentality. That's it. If, if I'm in uniform and 
there's a need over there and I need to help an old lady up, I'm going to go over there and help her up. If someone tries to attack the old lady, I'm going to go put my fist in his throat. Same guy. Same gal. Right? A true soldier is a responder to situations. A true soldier for Christ does whatever is necessary, whether it's assisting the brethren or fighting the enemy or both. And that's the point on the board. All things to all men. Paul endured whatever he needed to so that the gospel might be preached. God used a multifaceted individual to reveal to his children what grace orientation and humility looked like. He wasn't perfect, but he was effective. In other words, there's always there's a time for everything. Go to Ecclesiastes 3.1. Ecclesiastes 3.1. <clears throat> Sometimes you're bouncing babies on your knee. Sometimes you're flipping over tables and snapping a cord. Whatever is necessary. Ecclesiastes 3.1. But you've got to understand, folks, that's what humil- true humility looks like. That came up on Tuesday. True humility is aggressive. It's not interested in compromise. It sees what it sees. It orients to God, the ultimate authority in the universe, and makes it happen and moves to either encourage or correct the situation. And that's what we see with Paul. So there's a time for everything. Ecclesiastes 3.1, there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to throw stones, and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, and a time to shun embracing, a time to search, and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart, and a time to sew together a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. There's a time for everything, my friends. Up here on the board. Each and every circumstance requires a unique evaluation. Discernment is a function of wisdom, wisdom given by God. Again, each and every circumstance requires a unique evaluation. Discernment is a function of wisdom given by God. I mean, you might say, well, when is it time for war? When is it time for peace? Therefore, in Paul's case, he had to discern the best course of action depending on the situation, just as we all must do. As we've observed recently, Sometimes that course of action would be described as boasting. That was one example we were given. Here's Paul, Mr. Humility, but he's boasting? Seriously? Doesn't that contradict Mr. Humility? Not at all. Because that's what the situation required. He was contending with something. 
And the best way he thought to contend with it was to boast the way they were boasting. His boasting was done in a way that would make sense to his audience. They were predisposed to the type of boasting being done by the false prophets. While boasting this way, Paul's intention was to gain a seat at the table, to be able to relate as much as at a much less mature level than he may have done with, say, the Ephesians. Remember our study on the Ephesians? It was all good. It was like, you guys are doing great. This is, let me just reaffirm the faith. Not so with the Corinthians in general. But that's what humility looks like. It's whatever is appropriate for the time. Here's a perfect example of the man who would be all things to all men, to borrow from 1 Corinthians 9.22. And the context here is that the Corinthians had been giving an ear to false apostles. Go to 2 Corinthians 11.1. 2 Corinthians 11.1. I'm going to read this quickly. I would encourage you to read it again on your own time. 2 Corinthians 11.1. So this is the same guy who says, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Sometimes I'm going to even look foolish. Did he really think he was foolish in the eyes of God? No. But he said, I'll play this game with you. I'm more mature than you. I'm going to play this game with you. Because this is what you understand right now. If I try to present to you the higher level maturity things, you won't get it. Which is why you're paying attention to these idiots over here. So I have to I'll lower myself. I'll be, a, I'll be foolish with you. 2 Corinthians 11, 1. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. Bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles, but even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you all in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. This is all the muddied water that he was dealing with. And when I was present, you see he's speaking, you know, ridiculously, he's, but he's coming down to their level. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. Why? They couldn't handle it. They weren't ready to give. That's one. Of the, I've said this for, since the beginning of the ministry. One of the quickest ways you can tell someone's heart, I hate to say it, is how much they give. 
immature people give less to ministerial things. That's just the way it is. But I don't want to digress. Verse 10, As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. But what I am doing, I will continue to do, so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me as foolish, so that I, may all, my, that I also may boast a little. What I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you being so wise, he's being sarcastic, for you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. How many people can say that? Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me, of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, an ethnarch under Aratus, the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in a wall and so escaped his hands. What a life. And guess what? That stuff doesn't happen unless you keep going back. (laughs) Think about that. How did that stuff keep happening? Because he said, I'm going to go back. They're going to have to kill me. What do you think a shepherd does when a wolf comes? Well, we know what the hired hands do. They book it. What does a true shepherd do when the wolves come? They fight the wolves. And if they die, they die, I guess. But that's what they're built to do. I asked you that on Sunday. Which one do you want? Do you want a coward or do you want a warrior? Which one do you want? Do you want the masculinity 
that the world peddles now? Or do you want the masculinity that Paul had? Which one do you want? There's a time for everything, my friends. Sometimes a teacher must use fleshly arguments in order to contend with opposing fleshly thinking, since in order to pluck a person from ungodliness, the teacher must reach into the fire. As much as it may be distasteful to the teacher and offensive to the student. Now, what did Paul say? He's like, I don't even want, I don't want to boast, but you're forcing me to do this thing. I hate this. But he did it. Why? Because they were weak. And he knew it. They didn't because they were arrogant, uneducated. Some of them wise in their own estimation. As much as it may be distasteful to the teacher and offensive to the student, he realizes that he must do that thing to deliver Galatians 4.19 like a baby, his disciple. That was all of 2 Corinthians 11. So concentrate. There comes a time in a person's life, and this came up at the men's conference actually, there comes a time in a person's life. There comes a time that a person must completely bind themselves to the Lord. And in doing so, in humility, they are binding themselves to the authority in their lives. Again, there comes a time that a person must completely bind themselves to the Lord. And in doing so, in humility, they are binding themselves to the authority in their lives. God has delegated His authority in many ways in this world, whether it's national, familial, or in marriage. But the first and most important authority, of course, in our lives is that authority that God has over us. But that is the source of all delegated authority. So says Scripture. Furthermore, it also includes what God has delegated to us from the day we are born. In other words, there's one indisputable authority in our lives that everyone has been delegated to administer. That is the authority over our own souls. That is the authority over our own souls. We all have that authority, God-given to us. Keep concentrating. Now, what we have then is a microcosm within ourselves. We have the divine authority, and He delegated authority over our own souls to us. What we have is a microcosm of authority orientation, all within the confines of self. Authority orientation over self. God has given authority to each of us to govern our own souls. The new creature is divinely oriented, seeking to obey God's commands, whereas the flesh is antagonistic. The godly chain of command is through the new creature and upwards. Submission to others with delegated authority, etc., etc. You know, like a chain of command. Everybody knows what that is, the military term, right? Starts with you. What say you of the authority you have over your own soul? What say you of the other authorities? 
that are above you in the chain of command. So keep concentrating. I want you to consider your own life right now. No one else's. So stop going, oh, that person. No, you. I want you to consider your own life right now. No one else's. Just yours. And I want you to think about the chain of command. Starting with the new creature. And then realizing that the same God who gave you the authority over your own soul has also delegated authority to others in your life. Whether it's parents or husband or some other leader in your life, whether it's spiritual like me or national like the president. I just want you to dwell on the chain of command right now. Do that thing. Imagine it, however you like to visualize it. Just think about the fact that it exists and God delegated it in your life. Raise your hand if you've ever broken the chain of command. <laughs> right? Some people, Anthony! I don't do that in class. Way too cool. All right, so it's fair to say that we're all failures, right? I mean, even so, we mustn't forget the basics that first and foremost, God has delegated authority to us as individuals, you ready? As individuals to obey His commands. God, you, microcosm, you. I delegate to you to follow these commands. So that's like the building block of all other authority orientation. So God has delegated authority to us as individuals to obey His commands, yet, yet just as we noted, we've all failed and continued to do so. Keep concentrating. One of the most difficult things to do in the spiritual life is to persist quote, despite our own failures and weaknesses. Now, think about authority orientation. It's not always what you think. It's broader than most think. The world will try to undermine the authority orientation of the first divinely ordained institution, authority over one's own soul. Satan wants you to quit, to breach God's authority when he says, press on. I created you. I saved you. I'm sanctifying you. Press on. Okay. So if that's in the Bible, and you have authority, orientation in your soul, then what are you going to do? Press on. Hopefully you see the point. That's the fundamentals of authority orientation. The person who lacks that area in their life is going to struggle with all other compounded areas. In other words, in other words, the person who refuses the most fundamental authority besides God in their lives, that which exists over their own soul, is the person who struggles with every other form of authority orientation. A building can only be as strong as its foundation. If a person is fundamentally anti-authority oriented, picking and choosing from God's commands, they will prove themselves weak in every other area of authority orientation. Why? 
because the chain is only as strong as the weakest link. And if you're the weakest link, everywhere you engage with authority, guess what? It's going to be compounded. Stated differently, in getting back to our topic of perseverance, breaching authority orientation, if you dismiss God's commands to persevere, then you are challenging the divinely delegated chain of command in your own soul. Scripture says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. That's 1 Corinthians 16, 13, or 14. That's a command. Do these things. Listen to my voice right now. Satan wants you. Now, you need to keep focusing on yourself and the chain of command. Satan wants you to quit. Not just me, you, personally. Oh, it's personal. He wants you to think I'm making stuff up right now. He wants you to believe that I may not be who you think I am. Nor your brothers or sisters sitting next to you. And that I'm not exercising love right now. And neither are they. But he is the father of lies. The father of lies. And he wants to divide the body of Christ not just this church. Oh, trust me, he's working his things. Not this church, but the church, capital C. He wants to sow discord and strife, and he wants all of you to begin questioning the authority in your life, every last bit of it. Just turn on the TV or go see a movie what you'll see is an all-out assault on authority orientation. Nobody ever calls it out this way. But that's what's going on. An all-out assault on authority orientation. And like Satan, his agents will be asking all the questions of a serpent. You know, don't trust your parents. Aren't they the ones who have failed you over the years in this way and that way? What's really being communicated is don't obey them. You know, as Scripture clearly states, Ephesians 6, 1, for example, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. The serpent also says, don't trust your husband. Isn't he the one who just said the other day during that argument, I can't stand you. What's really being communicated is don't respect or submit to your husband. You know, as Scripture clearly states, Colossians 3.18, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 1 Peter 3.1, In the same way you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. The serpent also says, don't trust your pastor. 
Isn't he the one who has failed you in the past? Isn't he one of those idiots we see failing all over television now? Again, what's really being communicated is don't submit to your pastor. You know, like Scripture says, Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this, is, this would be unprofitable for you. One more. The serpent also says, don't trust the government. Aren't they all just a bunch of crooked, self-serving thieves? What's really being communicated is, don't obey your masters. You know, again, like Scripture says, Colossians 3.22, Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who are merely pleasing men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Just these little questions. Did you notice something about each and every case presented? Did you see the method? Did you see the method that the serpent uses Is that like a snake? Uses. In every case, the serpent asked leading questions. And why do you suppose I used that method? It's because Satan, the serpent of old, is by his very name an attorney, a lawyer, an accuser. And what are attorneys really good at? You ever see a sleazebag defense attorney cross-examine a nice witness? asking them all these ridiculous questions that have nothing to do with the case? Just to discredit the person on the stand? That's Satan. Did, did God not say... Serpents, accusers, lawyers. And it's one of the primary methods Satan uses in his agents to challenge authority. They ask questions when they shouldn't. In closing, let me show you a few examples of where the serpent's tongue was evidenced up here on the board. The serpent's tongue. Satan, the serpent of old, and his agents always attack the authority that God has delegated. They do so like lawyers do, quoting scripture, asking bad questions, and using misdirection. Even believers can speak like the serpent against authority. Genesis 3, one, and I invite you, we're not going to cover all that, we don't have time. I invite you to read all these passages, ASAP. Remember, these are on the website, so if you can't write them down quick enough. Genesis 3, 1 to 7, Matthew 4, 1 to 11, 9, 10 to 13, 12, 9 to 14. And I only stayed in Matthew after Genesis, by the way. You can go a bunch of other places and see the serpent's tongue and how it questions authority. Matthew 12, 9 to 14, 13, 53 to 58, 16, 1 to 4, 17 to 23, etc., etc., etc. We don't have time to read all the scriptures. That's homework. So let's just consider a couple of representative passages. Go to Matthew 12, 9. 
Matthew 12.9. You see, there's a huge difference between a humble person and an arrogant serpent. There's a huge difference between a person who's actually authority-oriented and someone who says they are. Matthew 12.9. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And a man uh, was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus. Here comes the serpent. Why not just behold a miracle? Seriously. Isn't that the point? Isn't that the whole point? No, but see, Satan and his agents, they always ask questions. They, use, they love to use corner cases to justify, to, to mangle the general case. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that what? They might accuse him. What does a lawyer do? Accuse. What does Satan mean? Accuser. Do you think they were really after the truth? Do you think they didn't already have their own predisposed thoughts on the subject? Not that it even mattered because they had an agenda. Is it lawful to hear on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, he will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. The ultimate authority, the God-man, the creator of these same people, sought to destroy him. Eventually they got their way physically, right? Hung him on a cross. And just FYI, you don't have to be a violent aggressor against Jesus to share in the serpent's tongue. You only need a tongue. You only need a tongue. Go to Matthew 16, 17. You don't have to be a violent aggressor against Jesus to share in the serpent's tongue. You only need a tongue. Matthew 16, 17. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter. Remember Petrus? To chip off the old block. That's the word that Jesus actually used for Peter. He says, you're like a chip off the old block. Me, I'm the rock. You're a little rock, right? I also say that to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter, you know, Peter, the apostle, took him aside 
and began to rebuke him. <laughs> That's kind of funny, right? I'm going to take the, the great authority in the universe and I'm going to rebuke him. Saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, the same guy who said Petrus, who called him Petrus, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Get behind me, Satan, up here on the board. He just got through telling him, building him up. But then, bam, get behind me, Satan. Why? It was the right thing to do. Peter had no right to do what he was doing. No right to question what he just told him. No right. Did it not say in Scripture he just told him what was going to happen? And he rebuked the Lord, the authority, the great authority. So what did the Lord say? Get behind me, Satan. Great. Perfect example of discipline in action. A leader taking charge. After posturing Peter as a chip off of the old block, the rock, Jesus harshly chastised him for challenging his words, calling him a stumbling block. Anyone looking to thwart his work is acting as Satan's mouthpiece, even someone as earnest as Peter. Yeah. That's what integrity looks like. That's what humility looks like. That's what authority orientation looks like. Get behind me, Satan. He wasn't saying that all the time to Peter. But in that moment, absolutely. Did he sit and explain it to him? No. Again, all of that is to help you understand this up here on the board. The serpent's tongue. Satan, the serpent of old, and his agents always attack the authority that God has delegated. They do so like lawyers do, quoting scripture, asking bad questions, leading questions, and using misdirection. Let's get people focused on all the wrong things, just like Satan did the serpent in the garden. Even believers can speak like the serpent against authority. Did we not just see that with Peter? We certainly did. Therefore, you don't have to be a violent aggressor against Jesus to share in the serpent's tongue. You only need a tongue. So let me close with this. We're only five, not eight, four minutes over. So We're all in positions of authority. For starters, you have authority over your own soul. Because of this, you know what it's like to have your authority challenged by an unholy opponent. For your own flesh challenges the authority orientation in your own soul. And beyond that, you can relate in marriage maybe, or one of the other divinely ordained institutions, so to speak. So I challenge you to consider how those attacks might weaken a single link in the chain of command. All the authority in your life 
granted by God. And when you start lawyering, or someone else starts lawyering, like the serpent of old, ask yourself how those attacks might weaken the chain of command. And how that weakness might wreak havoc in your lives and those around you. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.